Welcome to K-Explore's Emerging Research. We're focusing on research that's happening right now. It's science so fresh, you haven't even heard about it yet. I'm Stacey Cochran. And I'm Kim Winslow from the Knowledge Exchange. Today we're talking about food. What do you think when I say healthy foods, Kim? Ooh, I think about, especially this season, I think about pumpkins and I think about acorn squash. I think about all the fun fall foods that are coming out right now. Fresh foods you can find in your grocery store, for sure. And we all have our own experience with food. The smell, how it tastes, how it feels on our tongues. And now I'm hungry. But what makes us like certain foods more than others? That's where food scientists come in. Today, we're talking with Devin Peterson, a dean's chair and professor of flavor chemistry in the Department of Food Science and Technology in the College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences. He's also the director of the Foods for Health Discovery Theme Initiative. Welcome, Devin. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you here. Devin, we can't wait to talk about how you're working to make healthy foods taste better. And I'm not going to lie, if carrots tasted like cake, I would probably eat a lot more of them. Yeah, probably. Yeah, (laughs) I probably would. That's right. But first, we would like to start with a quick get to know you question. All right, this one I think is fun. We're going a little science fiction here today. Uh, Where would you travel if you could teleport? What? Teleportation? Yes. Yes. Um. Mars. Nice. Ooh. You're going to outer space. Yeah. Why? Why would you go to Mars? I just think it's such a unique experience. If you like, you know, what better way to kind of explore something new, right? Is a new planet. So I, I think that certainly the Earth has lots to offer, but you're talking about a whole nother sort of, you would say, dimension probably of experiences. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my yeah, goodness. Go say hi to the Mars rover. <laughs> yeah. <That's right. laughs> yeah. Wait. I want to get my phone. Yeah. So you caught me. What I really want is to get one of those images. Oh, yes. Perfect. Oh, my gosh. That'd be amazing. Hi, Mom. Yeah. That's right. Scientists discover a strange shape on Mars. (laughs) Oh, it's just Devin. That's right. I love it. Well, Kim, you know, our food doesn't just teleport into the grocery store. There is a lot of research that goes into developing a food product. That's right. Just like flavor research. So, Devin, your research focuses on taste and liking. You're looking at the whole experience of food and breaking down how certain compounds improve that experience. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's important? People, I think, really, when it comes to food, very connected to sort of what they eat and, and sort of intrinsically know the value of, of high, you know, food and as it relates to their health and then their pleasure and their enjoyment. So, when you gather around and you have, you know, events in your family and you're celebrating something, you're usually enjoying that with food that you like. And so it's an important part of, you know, say what makes us human. And so, you know, the idea of understanding what, uh, you know, how does flavor or you'd say the sort of liking of food, how does that impact your food choice? I think it's a really key piece if we think about how do we enable, um, you know, healthy eating behaviors that, uh, you know, would have a lot of um, impact, you'd say, in our world. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and something that you had mentioned when we spoke earlier is that when you talk about liking food, it's not just how the food lands on your tongue, right? It's also about the experience of liking food. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So yeah, let me let me just um, you know think a little bit about how does flavor work. So flavor is what we say is a very multimodal perception. And if you think about you know a little bit about your how you're perceiving food, I'm going to talk about it when you ent- when it when you put something in your mouth in your oral cavity and you start chewing on it or masticating it. 
there are actually three different sensory systems in the oral cavity with millions of receptors. And so you have this food system, this food that you're, uh, whether it's coffee or a piece of cake or pumpkin pie, you're talking about maybe healthier eating. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw myself some pumpkin pie. Um, you know, these, these said, yeah, these, these sort of different sensory systems, again, will pick up on different molecules that are in the food and hopefully provide inputs to you that come together as what we'll call flavor perception. And, and sort of a, you know, what is sort of interesting about this is that you cannot look at a molecule and predict that it will respond to a receptor. And so there's still even a really unknown understanding of the mechanisms of how do they respond to receptors and, and ultimately what would be perceived. And so a lot of this work actually is, you know, to defining what is a flavor compound is actually not simple. It takes a lot of analytical work to tease out, um, you know, what we're actually responding to. And there's still a lot of work to be done there. So food has such a tremendous impact on our health. And I know that it's a challenge, I think, for a lot of people to eat healthy foods, maybe because they don't like the taste of it, or it doesn't, there's something about it that's not pleasing to them. Why is healthy eating such a challenge for so many people? And what are you working on in your research that's trying to help? So you're correct. I think that food is a next frontier to help with, you know, health initiatives, right? Simply stated. So if you look at the, you know, what would say, how is food impacting our health and wellness? Well, if, if you just look at it, it's really about poor dietary patterns. So what is it that we're consuming too much of or too little of, I suppose, is, is a simple way of thinking about that. And if you look at the dietary patterns globally, they're not that different in regards to what is problematic in the United States and that generally we consume not enough, for example, whole grain and prefer, say, refined products, right? The brand and the germ are removed from that because really... I think a lot of it relates back to, again, things that we enjoy. And so not thinking about uh, enjoyment as it relates to healthy eating to me just doesn't make sense. It doesn't connect in, in, in a real way that is enabling because in the end, we're going to choose things that we enjoy. And so it, it is the kind of, as you're saying, why is healthy eating so difficult? We've made a lot of advancements in, in our economic system and, and sort of, if you will, agriculture um, you know, production and, and sort of ways we think about the food supply. So we have advanced um, all types of food ingredients to make them very abundant, and that makes them very affordable. But one of the challenges, I guess, with that is if you just focus on making it affordable, abundant, you kind of lose out on what drives consumer decisions, and that being the liking of these products. So we can think about it you know, as, as a two sort of vector approach. One is things that maybe drive hedonics or liking and things that drive aversion or disliking. Unfortunately, although salt is very economical, same as sugar, um, you know, that we can add these to improve liking of, of say, the food ingredients as ingredients and as food products. You know, I think there's a much bigger opportunity to really understand the more complexity of when I'm consuming something, what is sort of important for my behavior in that regard and what I like or what I will choose to eat. And how do I start just making that uh, part of, if you will, the research and innovation that's occurring in the food system. And so tomatoes is a good example where they've been bred really for yield and the color, right? And so this is, they're shipped all over the country. They got to remain firm um, and they got to have a great color because that's how consumers are picking them. But when you eat them, they're certainly lacking, I think a lot of people would agree, in flavor. And so we add things like salad dressing to them now, or we add salt to them, right, to really improve their palatability. So it just gets at the heart of that. Well, and that that actually leads well into uh, the research that you're working on now. You want to have people enjoy the food that they're eating and make those healthy choices. 
because the food tastes good. And speaking of food that's good for you, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the research that you have going on right now on hazelnuts. Yeah. Nuts are a great source of protein, and there are also so many options to choose from. Uh, And I didn't realize this when you mentioned it, that most of the hazelnuts we buy in the U.S. are from Turkey because American hazelnuts are bitter. So, Devin, you're working on a project to domesticate the American hazelnut and change their flavor profile. So, yeah, I think hazelnuts is a great idea of how do we use science to lead to a better lifestyle, right? And so... The goal, again, of this is to think about these ingredients in a way that goes beyond yield. And again, I want to be careful. Yield is certainly something that is, it's not a negative. It is what we should be doing because it makes things more affordable. But what we need to do along the way is sort of build in the idea that let's not lose all the diversity and, if you will, uh, the flavor attributes of these nuts, that we keep them as we're advancing them, right, to make them have more commercial relevance in that regard as well. And so in the U.S., we have a domestic hazelnut. Um, that is grown here, uh, you know, across the prairie and, and uh, you know, throughout certain regions across from the northern parts right through the southern tip, on, particularly on the western side. If you took one of the nuts, it looks like about a quarter the size of a domestic hazelnut that you would get in their, in their store. Uh, but they are more adapted to our environment. So they're insects, the cold climate that we have in the north, they're just much more, uh, you know, evolution has weaned them to our environment where the European just won't grow here. And and they, we do grow some European in Oregon where the climate can be, uh, you know, favorable for that. But if you really want to grow them in a larger area and have it as a larger sort of production uh, opportunity, uh, really the idea is taking this American hazelnut and breeding it again uh, with American ones and with, uh, you know, current bridles across the U.S. that increase their yield. My work with that is to say, hey, you know, this is an opportunity to, if you I have tried maybe about, I don't know, half a time, maybe 12, 15 different bridles that are grown here locally, and they range tremendously in flavor character um, in, in both what we'll call the aroma and also we'll say the taste part. And so you are correct that some of the challenges of hazelnuts, and not just um, the domestic ones, even the European ones, although they, they know how to control a little better, is bitterness. And so these bitter compounds are just uh, normal metabolites of the nut, or when the insects actually eat the nut and are sort of, if you will, you got to remember these things grow out in, in the field. Uh, they are, you know, other things can, can also want to nibble on them, <laughs> such as an insect. And then that, that nut will create a defense mechanism and, and basically it can generate other things. And actually some of these molecules are perceived as bitter. And so, you know, which is adversive. And so what do we do typically? If you think about even nuts, like what a great example of this. We usually cover them in chocolate or, you know, sugar or whatever it is to eat them. And I just don't think that should be, uh, you know, what we consider to be uh, the only option to have our consumption. And so nuts is another one. If you look at dietary patterns, um, you know, as I mentioned, whole grain, right? We also talked about a overconsumption of sodium. Uh, lack of consumption of nuts is certainly uh, part of that, along with, say, um, fruits and vegetables, okay, in that regard. So so more consumption of these, you know, ingredients um, certainly would be uh, what we consider by science to be a better health-promoting diet. Sure. So what is the benefit then for us to produce hazelnuts in the U.S., that it's another crop that farmers can produce, that we keep our food more local uh, so we don't have as much with shipping and costs and everything? So you hit it on the head. I think really a big part of it is just local. So there's certainly a movement towards more locally produced uh, agriculture commodities and, and ingredients and food products. You know, and there's not a big carbon footprint from shipping it halfway across the world. 
the plants actually, when you look at a hazelnut tree, they can be intermingled with other agriculture crops and actually provide wind barriers and, and soil regeneration. There's a lot of different ways you could think about sustainable agriculture, right, from the benefit of just diversifying our crop. One of the things that agriculture has sort of struggled with over time is that we have made things very uniform uh, for good purpose. If you're trying to <laughs> make something very um, simplistic and, and you think about production and making it uniform has value. Uh, but I think, you know, as time moves on and we learn from, you know, different innovations in the, in the space, um, certainly the idea of creating, you know, more perennial crops and, you know, you've heard of ancient grains, things that are not annuals, things that have other agriculture or, you know, benefits for farmland. Um, and, and actually, uh, hazelnuts can fill some of this void. So I'm fortunate to work with this group that's out of Minnesota and Wisconsin. And they're working on really the agronomic traits, right, in that regard. So the yield and, and disease resistance and up. I'm trying to get them to also implement that, okay, here are things that maybe are adversive, like bitterness, but here are some aroma compounds that are very desirable. And how do we make sure that as we're sort of breeding new varietals, that we have these highly flavorful, highly liked, um, that would therefore outcompete even the European. So there has been a lot of advancements in the food supply. If you go to a, a grocery store, it is a really a modern miracle right. you look at all the options that are in front of you uh, it is it is pretty amazing but i think that what that is is really about efficiencies of distribution and sort of this idea of this sort of more commodity-based market and i think where this where we need to go now is this next level is really enhancing the overall quality of these products in a way that just allows us to eat let's say in a in a more uh let's say aligned way with how we choose food right so Having again these healthier choices, there's these tomatoes that you want to be eating because yes. they're, you know, there, there's certainly a research going on. If you look at heirloom tomatoes or really any of the, you know, uh, you know, some of the varietals that you could, you know, that aren't commercial, uh, we have a, a new um, project that'll be coming up on strawberries and looking at again, how do you think about, uh, you know, advancing strawberry flavor, right, for uh, certain environments and so, and even for certain cohorts of the population. Oh, there's nothing more disappointing than buying a box of strawberries <laughs> and they look beautiful and you get them home and you cut them open and they're white and they have no I know. flavor. They taste mealy yeah. or they just don't taste like anything at all. Yep. Well, and Devin, isn't this project that you're talking about with strawberries, is this in the new controlled environment building on Waterman? Yes. So this will be part of that. So it's really looking at, again, you know, what, what is sort of really interesting about this space of flavor, again, as I was sort of generally talked about this before, you have these, again, a lot of chemical receptors, right, in, in, in your oral cavity. There's still, a, although we know some things that, re, that we respond to, really understanding what drives liking is largely uncharted territory. It, it's a lot more complicated to think about these patterns and what is sort of important for behavior, okay, in that regard, or consumption behavior, than um, then maybe I think that people might have appreciation for. So that's an area that I think we really need to evolve sure. in that regard as well. Yeah, I know we learn in school, you know, you see your food, you smell it, you taste it, but there's so much more that's happening that, I mean, I wasn't even really aware of. So taste buds, we learned about taste buds and we understand how those work. Right. But Exactly. Yeah. And is it an old wives tale that they change every seven years? <laughs> the taste buds? Really? <laughs> you know, I just... <laughs> So I, I, I know they're regenerated. I don't know the exact life cycle of that. Um, but <laughs> Man, mom, if you're listening, I'm a little angry right now. <laughs> yeah. Was she just trying to like mess yeah. with you? You know, you need to try that asparagus again. Oh. You are seven. Oh, no. So. There you go. 
But I think, you know, when you have asparagus or broccoli, I think that there's a lot of work that can be done on how do we generate or develop broccolis that are less adversive to, to young, for example, people yes. um, that still maintain nutritional quality. And so I don't think those have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be healthy and, and, and not life. I, I don't see that as, as how, I just think that's a consequence of breeding these things relentlessly without thinking about taste. Sure. <laughs> so, yes. and, and we have done, we have done some of this in the air system. If you think about, you know, like, uh, sweet corn and we add sugar because again sugar and salt drive like those are a no-brainer right. so generally uh, you know and we just overdo those but i think that you don't need to do that i think we can remove both salt and sugar and actually still maintain liking if we had a better understanding of this sort of what we're responding to as it relates again sure to, you know you'd say yeah like, that makes a lot of sense yeah i think about um brussels sprouts how i probably would never have touched brussels sprouts because they were like little baby cabbages yeah. But you put some olive oil on it, a little sea salt, roast them in the oven, and it's like candy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you saute anything, Sauteed. it's going to help. Yeah, right. <laughs> Roasting. Yeah. It sounds like a dream. Hey, Kim. <gasps> wow, that was an excellent segue, right? Stacey. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, well done. Do you know what it's time for? I do now. It's time for our dream big segment. Devin, all right. I know you're prepared for this. If you had, um, I am. You are. You're totally. You're totally ready. <laughs> okay. You are. You are ready. <laughs> okay. I'm ready. If you had unlimited resources, funding, time, support, people, what big question would you like to research? I think what we really need to start focusing on more is what is what are the mechanisms of flavor that impact liking. So again, we've studied a lot of what's roasty, what's, you know, different smells and what all contributes, but really what drives liking is still poorly characterized. Um, there can be, for example, we've recently discovered molecules that have no perception on their own, but when you add them, will completely change the flavor character, okay, of the product. And these are called flavors with modifying properties. And so by themselves, you try them, you receive nothing. But when you put it with a food matrix, uh, it, it has a big impact on how you sort of relate to that product. And so, you know, the idea of just teasing out more fundamentally these mechanisms as it relates to what I like or dislike, um, I think is to me is paramount. Uh, and I would also say in the same sort of way, when I talk about flavor, you're talking about receptor responses and ultimately then a cognition. Um, the same could be said for food as it relates to health and wellness. So what is the molecular composition of foods that really drive health and wellness? And I think that's also an area uh, we have epidemiological data. We have some understanding of metabolism, but really still haven't tapped into how do we understand what is really driving health or uh, poor health? Uh, so what are some negatives in food that come from nature in a way um, that we can have a better appreciation and really develop food supply, right, that is um, just at a higher quality? Again, as I kind of my, my sort of if I have a theme, that's where I'm trying to go to. Nice. Your dream. Yeah, that makes a lot. Yeah, it, I mean, and you're right. We really, that complexity of the body, I think, is still just, I mean, a big black box, right? Of understanding how all of those systems work together to answer this question of health, which I think is also a word that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, now, Devin, in this question, who would you bring along as your team to look into it? Who's my dream team? Really, I, I would say I'd like to summarize this a couple ways and think about this with you. So I would certainly try to look at uh, building more fundamental understanding, but I really would like to couple it more into what I would say uh, expertise that goes beyond 
this campus and to say other stakeholders such as industry and and sort of the world of commercialization i really believe to me the sweet spot is how do you connect basic and application work together in a way that is just i think more enabling uh, and so for me, I think having some kind of continuum between, you know, fundamental research all the way through to the innovation commercialization, commercialization, you know, ecosystem or having this ecosystem is, is sort of the team that I think you really need, um, you know, in that regard. And so I would say under this, you're talking about, you know, across the campus, you know, neuroscientists, psychologists, geneticists, synthetic biologists. Uh, that's a huge area right now is that, you know, how do we get, um, for example, uh, fermentation or say yeast to produce molecules of interest to us, right? Things that are of value to us because they can do it very efficiently, um, you know, in that regard, you know, industry researchers I mentioned, people, business expertise. But I really think the idea of, of this is not to, that you have fundamental discoveries, but that we can build on those fundamental discoveries through a lens now of commercialization. And I think if you can connect those dots in, 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 in ways that sort of enable change in the world, then I think you're really starting to do something. Well, that's fascinating. And yeah, this this brings up so many questions, but I think what this really comes down to is that, Devin, I've really enjoyed hearing about your portion of this research. The fact that one of the elements that will make great gains in the healthy eating component is by understanding what it is that people enjoy about eating. What are these compounds that bring enjoyment or, as you said, disliking, aversion, so that we can make foods that will be palatable, be enjoyable, be something that people want to eat and therefore improve their overall diet to improve overall wellness. And so, yes, we ended this with saying, oh my gosh, there's so much more to learn. But at the same time, you know, I think that the element that you bring to all of this is the first step that will actually make quite an enormous difference in people being able to see um, this, this big leap in healthy health, health and wellness. Um, you know, in the modern age. And then hopefully we can dig into why, you know, and, and make uh, a little bit more of a stride in that space too. So thank you so much for joining us, for talking with us and explaining about what you do. Uh, it's my pleasure. And again, I just to add one follow-up. This is about not adding things. This is about just getting an understanding nature in a way that you can lead by science and elevate food quality and 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 sort of in the ways we're already growing and making food and just having a better understanding of all the building blocks that enable us just to direct this, um, you know, to a level that just is, um, has a lot of economic uh, impact and, and also health impact. So. Great. Yep. Thank you so much, Devin. It's been great chatting with you. My pleasure. And thanks for listening to K-Explore's Emerging Research. Want to explore more fresh research from the College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences? Visit kx.osu.edu.